This is Culture A Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and this is a show where we'll deep dive on the good and the bad with Middle East HR and talent experts on their challenges, strategies, and success stories to inspire your own journey. Listen in and get ready to unlock potential and drive results with Culture A. Thanks, everybody, for listening in today on Culture A. On today's show, I have a very, very special guest, David Houlihan, who joins me from Accenture. David is currently the recruitment director there for Middle East and Africa. And David, thank you so much for joining me today. Just to give our listeners a quick overview of who you are, so you know who I'm speaking with, David's had a substantial experience in leading sort of transformative initiatives and driving HR planning and strategic business growth. Not only does he have demonstrated expertise in recruiting, which is of course his background, but as well as in HR partner roles, including manpower planning, including employee engagement. And I'm sure there's a long list that kind of follows that as well. He's been recognized widely for developing and revamping talent ecosystems in the Emirates, in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, and in the Bahrain markets. So very well accustomed to this region which we love to focus on and encompasses both, you know, government and private multinational corporations. So very, very strong background. And again, David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. I appreciate the time. Of course. I'm going to hand it over to you for just a couple of minutes. If you want to maybe give our listeners a brief overview, in addition to what I've told them about your background, kind of where what your expertise is, what you've had your hand in, what kind of makes you tick. Great. Thank you very much. Yes, absolutely. I suppose to add to that, obviously, you're probably telling my accent, I'm Irish and I've been in the Middle East now 14 years, having lived in Saudi, Bahrain and the UAE, all three countries as well. So I've been doing my tour, shall we say, per se, around the Gulf at this time, but also covering, you know, Middle East, Africa, but also as well, Southeast Asia, India as well, also Turkey as well, it was within Levant also. So my functionality, in, in essence, would have been the core of, as we know now, talent acquisition, recruiting, but I've also covered talent management. And I think when you're brought into a leadership role, you're very engaged, of course, with the wider HR scope as well, and from a strategic perspective. I've been very lucky, I believe, to have joined some fantastic companies and organizations as well, which has been a great learning curve for me, particularly I would feel in the multinational space, but also as well with the smaller business as well, and government. So obviously my engagement and obviously my input has been, as you mentioned, absolutely change. It's the core of what Accenture is. We're all about change. It's consistently moving. But I think obviously keeping a a pace of change, you know, obviously as we move into AI and we move into obviously technology, which is driving, you know, obviously particularly recruiting and um, HR itself, you know, it's quite an exciting time now. And I think over the next five years, we're going to see quite a huge change, quite transformational change in how HR as a whole is going to function, not just here in the Middle East, but I think globally as well. Yeah. And you, first of all, thank you very much for that um, overview. I think it's given artists a lot of insight on your background a bit and kind of what interests you. Let's talk about change because there is a very big, significant change that's happening in the market. It's actually the subject behind our show today, and that is how companies are now offering what they call flexible working arrangements. It's a sensitive topic, I think. There's a lot of hesitation to really discuss it openly. Let's discuss what it is. So, you know, how how do you define flexible working? Obviously, everyone's got a different perception of what flexibility should be. And there was always some level of flexibility within each organization. When we look at flexibility of, you know, working practices, work-life balance, obviously, you know, prioritization, you're looking, I think, globally, 
the maturity was there. The Middle East, I think, is, does have a slight, shall we say, reservation. Now, I find that mm-hmm. okay with not so much the multinationals, but maybe the more localized companies, whereby they're traditionally abreast of, you know, being in the office. But the changes definitely happened. And I think COVID was definitely a great instigator of that to kind of, you know, put it forward, put it in place, test it out. And it proved, I believe, quite successful. You know, companies themselves, you're seeing some of them now transition back to a, you know, an office space environment on a semi-flexible basis. But overall, I think the expectations now of future hires happening or future people looking to move organizations or change jobs, the priority now is that flexibility. And that flexibility is work from home. It could be, you know, more flexible working hours. It could be work-life balance. It could be more, obviously, their focus, particularly in the Middle East with expatriates, that flexibility of being able to work from home in their home country, going home for a couple of weeks. So there's a number of factors, I believe, there, which are in keeping employees engaged. We were very surprised, I believe, here in Accenture when we expected during COVID that we didn't see an escalation okay, of attrition. Actually, attrition dropped because Accenture put in place a number of different factors to make life more balanced, shall we say. And they were, i talk through those later on, but I believe the flexibility of, uh, you know, being able to, particularly in this part of the world, with expatriate workforce, that is a huge expectation, I believe now, of, of future talent going forward. David, you, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> it is an expectation of talent in the market. It is what they're expecting to receive from an employer. And I think it's looked at almost as a bare minimum. At the mm-hmm. very least, you can give me flexible working, you know, and in addition to it. XYZ. What's funny is I'm seeing out there, and this is just my perception, so I want to put that disclaimer out. When you go online to different job boards or LinkedIn, where you see jobs advertised, there's always a section at the bottom that says, what do we offer? And many people note down, we offer flexible working. It doesn't explain exactly what that is, but you, you can tell they're putting it out there as a method of attraction because it is what interests people now. And as you rightly said, COVID very aggressively forced us to move into a work from home culture. And for those organizations that didn't, you know, were not in a position where they had to reduce headcount or, or close down. And unfortunately, that was a lot. There were individuals that were able to work from home and it just proved that. It was something that was possible. In many ways, it worked in the reverse in the sense that because people were working from home, there wasn't like a dense, like a hard line in terms of a cutoff on your work day. And so you saw productivity increase. You saw deliverables increase. You know, there was a, it kind of skyrocketed in terms of efficiency of employees because they were dedicating those hours. And at the same time, it allowed them to pop out in the middle of the day if they needed to or tend to their families they needed to. And so it, it did create this new normal. And this is what we're seeing as a trend after the pandemic, right? Um, candidates prefer this kind of work environment. Mm-hmm. Do you see companies that are not offering this? And, and what I mean by that is not typically working from home, but even a hybrid model. Companies mm-hmm. that don't offer that, do you see it impacting their company culture? It's a great question, Sarah. I think there was a little, a very recent stat by LinkedIn, and this was obviously done by geography, but particularly with the Middle East perspective, okay, the, the respondents were 72% of people, if they were offered a job with non-hybrid working, would not accept the role. Only 18% no. said they would actually accept a position if it was office-based 100%. Now, that's just one stat. Now, that just gives you a very clear indication that, you know, nearly 75% of people want this. This is what is very important. You hit the nail on the head as well. Absolutely. I mean, particularly mothers, you know, or fathers, as the case may be, you know, who have young children. They're able to manage their their day around, you know, the expectations of, say, schooling or dropping the kids off or kids to school in the morning, or if the child is very young. 
you know, that flexibility is critical, particularly for female employees. I mean, or even male employees to a certain degree, but diversity and course and inclusion is a huge topic. That's just one section. I think overall, if you look at it and the productivity, you rightly said, we saw productivity rise and it was increased. The key words I think that has been thrown around is trust. Do you trust your employees to be able to be productive? You know, and that's down to leadership. Leadership need to make those decisions to understand that they trust their people. Then again, there's the argument of, you know, well, I can't, this person's not performing. Well, that's down to putting in the right metrics, putting the right SLAs, the right KPIs, the right support mechanism. And, and tracking right. systems to be able to gauge. Yeah. Yeah. So from that perspective, okay, you know, if you do have the right tools in place and the right mechanisms in place as well, productivity can be measured. It can be very clearly outlined. You rightly said, you know, do you have to work nine to five if you have to attend meetings in certain cases? But people who are working seven, eight in the evening, they might take a two hours off, say from one to three, and then work late in the evening. So that kind of, I think the whole genre of the whole nine to five, nine to six concept, okay, is slowly going out the window. You know, a working day is a working day. You're paid for eight hours. We know very well people work more than those hours now. It's very common, particularly in COVID, people were, you know, when we're moving people around and mobility issues and, you know, so on support from there, being particularly trying to get people into the country due to, you know, legal issues or, you know, compliance issues with local legislation. So I think that flexibility shone through. I believe it did in Accenture. We've always had this model. So it's nothing new for us. We just flicked a switch. But um, I think for the employer, you know, it's very much a case that they should be taking note of these stats, you know, what people are expecting going forward. Comp and Ben is one thing. Absolutely. Healthcare is important. Absolutely. The financials are important, but I believe the flexibility now is the part is the number one feature for new employees going forward. I agree with you. And you, you quoted a stat there. I actually have a similar stat that I wanted to share, but I'm going to pause for a second, come back to that because we, we now, I mean, even in our discussion, we have two, two data references that we could bring up. I mean, it, it just proves to me that this is a very hot talked about topic. It is something that is needed, is something that is wanted, and it's something that's valued at the same time. I was discussing how employees feel valued in an organization. And now, of course, there's a, a you know a very high number of things that we can throw into that list to say why they would feel valued. But one of them is trust, trust from your employer. One of them is ownership, right? So do you have the ownership to perform in your role? And if you do, and your employer trusts you, then that strict nine to five sitting at your desk should not prove that you are or not doing your role. It's something that's very hard to shift away from because, you know, typically with more regional organizations or local organizations, it is the cultural norm. It's something very different to how they usually operate. And I'm specifically talking about roles that do not mandate you being in the office. Of course, there are roles sometimes times that you, you have to be there physically. I resonate with mm -hmm. some of the things that you said. Let's talk about from a talent acquisition perspective, how flexible working helps, right? Because when, one of the things that you look at is candidate attraction. And when you're looking to fill roles or employ people without flexible working, you're restricted to looking within a certain geography, or you look at places where you're okay to bring them in from and then supply a visa for it. With flexible working or with work from home arrangements, that geographical restriction is gone. It's eliminated, right? So it completely opens up a pool of talent that you couldn't tap in previously. I myself have a family member who is based in a GCC country, lives there, works for a company out of the US, caters to the GCC markets and works remotely, works from her home. And she does it very successfully. So that's one example. There's a million. So can we talk through kind of what you feel, well, if you feel that geographical 
positioning is top of mind for candidates when they're looking for something? Is it like a deciding factor when they're looking to apply for a role? Do you do you feel that? It is quite a broad question, Sarah. I think yeah. that when you're looking at, it's very much around the industry you're in, I think, generally speaking. You know, obviously it's down to clients as well. You know, so you have your internal mechanisms of chaos, productivity, of course, and expectation, but you also have the client expectation as well. If I was to give you an example, say, for example, of say Accenture, you know, we are a client facing company. We are very much sitting with the client. We partner with the client. We're basically, you know, they're, they're right hand people. And we go through that journey from A to Z, you know, plus that being said and done, the expectation of K on the ground from the client is one thing. And that may require to have a certain number of folks with the client 24-7 in a consulting capacity. If you look at technology, for example, with, with our RDA, you know, so our development authority, they can, that, that's all short because we don't need to have those people physically on the ground because of the type of, you know, obviously technology that, that's been designed for the client doesn't necessarily require you to be on the ground. So again, it's very role specific. It's very industry specific. It's very much on the expectation of the client. Back to your point, you know, we are seeing this huge shift to data and coding and engineering, of course, as well. These things can all be done from your bedroom. You know, you can be sitting there on your desk and coding away. It's not, or you be in a cafe. So then, this, so that requirement, as we, as we just mentioned beforehand, if we're setting the right accountability and the right expectations, that person knows, you know, that they have to have a certain thing done in a certain timeline. Then again, there is a flip side to this as well. And I think that is kind of a concept around engagement from a human ex- aspect. You know, when we do get onto Teams, we do get onto different virtual calls, meetings. Yes, they are engaging, but there is that element of physical engagement as well. So I think when you do, some people may argue, well, if I have a person working, for example, in Dubai, you know, are they atten- meeting your, your peers, your colleagues, your clients? That does create a better working environment as well. So, you know, is the hybrid model working? Yes, it is. I do believe it, it, it's essential for certain roles or it's essential for certain skills. But I do believe that there is a requirement to be in the office, you know, maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks to attend meetings, to meet your fellow colleagues, to meet your clients. That is essential because you're still creating that one-to-one relationship, which is super important for consulting, particularly coding a different kettle of fish and technology because that has its own matrix. But I do feel that, you know, absolutely the way forward is going to be virtual. You know, it's proven itself that it works. The flexibility that it gives people is essential. But there is a certain requirement, I think, on the client side. And I think in this part of the world, you'll find a lot of clients do prefer to have that one-on-one engagement. They like to have you physically with them. Not necessarily every day, but at least if you're there two or three or four days a week, you know, they'll accept that. You know, and they do raise questions when people aren't on the ground with them. You know, we've heard that quite often. So you do have to kind of measure in weights, the suitability, mm-hmm. skill, the role, consider the client, ex- consider the execution and the relationship more importantly as well. Absolutely. And I think from a people perspective as well, we have to also consider, you know, I, my perspective will always be slightly skewed because from a personal standpoint, I, I do have a family. I have two young children. So that, that balance is something that I, I need, I demand, you know, so I can look at it from those, you know, mm-hmm. those rose colored glasses. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. You have individuals that don't have that. I have a different, uh, you know, personal situation. They prefer the, the interaction. They prefer the collaboration in person. And so I do think that the hybrid working model is mm-hmm. the best one because then it caters, right? It caters to everyone and what they typically need. You just don't necessarily see organizations where they're mandating being in office. And actually I'm going to, it's going to take me back to the previous point that you made, that data point, 
I ran a poll on uh, about flexible working. Okay. Mm-hmm. And essentially I asked the question, you know, if your role didn't mandate you being in the office, but your employer did or prospect employer, would you take the job? And the, you know, the responses were yes or, or no, or I prefer hybrid. And what I saw, so 645 people voted, 57% of them said they would not accept the job offer if it mandated that they're on, mandated that they're on site. Uh, 57% is, is, I mean, that is a staggering number. And if you think about it from a recruitment perspective, you're losing 57% of your talent pool because it's not something that you're offering. So it's a big hit, you know, it's a big hit to your uh, attraction ability. And it's obviously a significant insight to support the fact that, you know, the shift to flexible working is becoming the norm and that job seekers are now in a position of power where they can request this, they can expect it, and they can start a dialogue about it, let's say, with Mm -hmm. employers. What data point would you say that you look into to track this kind of candidate behavior? Uh, So even if your clients sometimes, you know, ask the question, of course, as Accenture, it's expected. How do you go back to those clients, you know, with a rebuttal or with a data point to help support your method of working? Great question. I mean, obviously our, our lives have not been made easier, put it that way, in recruiting. I mean, it was hard enough, I think, and obviously a recruiter's job is, you know, it's a tough job. I mean, you're, as I say, a recruiter is a juggler. You're constantly juggling many different expectations, be it the candidate side, the client side, like your business partner side, you know, obviously that's important. You know, how do we go to clients? Obviously, I think when you speak to clients, and that's very much a partnership model we've done with, obviously, with the business, because the business bid for business. They discuss these things with the client. They bring HR into the conversations, you know, to have those conversations with clients and expectations, you know. So we will give data points and we will be at the meetings, as, as, as the case may be, giving information like that, for example, saying, you know, well, you do need, what do you actually need on the ground? What specifically do you need? What do you expect? And then we will come to an agreement from there. We'll say, well, you know, in essence, okay, if we have a client in, say, Jeddah, you know, their expectation is to have somebody there five days a week. And we'll say, well, for what requirement, what need do you feel that's for? We can give you three days a week or two days a week because we can do this offshore and then you can have two meetings a week. So you come to an alignment. It's not just a HR recruitment thing. That's very much a business sales discussion that needs to happen. And HR needs to be, and recruitment needs to be in these conversations to, you know, to kind of somewhat, I would say, you know, mediate to a certain degree, but listen to the expectations and the capabilities that are required, because we do know there are challenges and skills. There is huge competition, particularly in consulting and, you know, consulting and strategy about bringing people into this market with the expertise that is required. There is a shortage of that skill, particularly at the senior level. So when you're trying to enhance or from a candidate value proposition, you know, the hybrid conversation is always brought up, you know, where can I live? For example, do I have to live in Saudi? Do I have to be virtually living in Dubai? Can I just travel to Saudi twice? All of these questions, I have a family, all these kind of things. So I think from us, from a candidate value selling point perspective, that clear, I, I suppose, expectation is set with the client from the beginning. And then that trickles down to us here in HR to be able to manage that expectation with the candidate. So therefore, we're setting out the expectations from the get-go. Okay, perfect. You touched on something I wanted to kind of further expand on. You know, talent attraction is uh, typically sits with, obviously, with recruitment. But you're looking at bringing in people to an organization. Like, mm-hmm. Let's completely simplify it, right? So what individuals want, what they're asking about in interviews or once they're employees or in their exit interviews when they're leaving, these are all insights that you connect and you can leverage to strengthen or tweak, let's say, your approach to something. Can you help me understand how you kind of 
how you feel you should strengthen that internal collaboration. So between recruitment and HR and the business and the leaders, how do you strengthen that internal collaboration to make sure that there's an ongoing dialogue about this that reflects the needs and the wants from your employees, from your prospective candidates, from, you know, and so on. Brilliant question. And it's down to, I think, the wonderful world of recruitment. So, you know, always it's a very KPI metric driven. So we're constantly under the radar. You know, when you look at holistic HR or the wider space of HR, you know, that's, that can be quite qualitative, but it's more so quantitative in, in regards to recruitment and data speaks words. So what we do Clearly, is a number of clear KPI, clear data points we look at on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis. And we go to leadership with these feedbacks. You know, we look at, you know, the funnel, for example. So, you know, the amount of applications to shortlist to hire, interviews to hire, for example, as well, diversity, pipelining, localization, amortization, Saudiization, you know, the acceptance of offers versus those, okay, non-accept. We look then, of course, at the probation periods as well. You know, had people left within the six months, which they're, or three months in the case may be in Saudi you know, within those timelines and why have they left? And so the exit interviews are a critical component to understand, you know, why people are leaving. That's one metric. I think mean, that's obviously two metrics or three metrics, but I think the actual quality of hire as well is super important. You know, obviously, are we hiring the right people and are they staying after what, after 12 months? So we in recruitment have a responsibility up to month 12 of a person being enrolled to understand the quality of that hire because that enables us to measure how successfully we are assessing people, how we're attracting them. You know, obviously then you, you're sourcing channel mixes and you have other metrics as well to support how we're sourcing these folks, of course, and, it, and obviously where we're attracting them from. The needle has shifted. You know, people don't apply for jobs anymore. You know, I mean, if you post a job at, say, out of 500 applicants, you would say maybe 12 are relevant. You know, so the, we've shifted the needle now to very much a headhunting expert, expectation. And to be a headhunter, you've got to sell a company. You've got to, and in essence, recruiters are salespeople as well. They're representing the brand. They've got to have a strong candidate value proposition as well. So again, these questions, the first question we're asked, the first three questions we're asked, of course, the role, the specifics, and is it hybrid? That's the second question. Females particularly would ask that question, you know, is it hybrid? Can I work from home? And then of course, as well, about their families, education, flexibility of working from home, from their home country. Again, another question they're asked. So these are the top three. And of course, the old school comp and Ben. But to answer your question, the KPIs, absolutely. That, that's a critical component of a data point. We go back to leadership with all the time stating, this is what's happening. This is the, and we go to the market. We all understand our competitors. What are they doing? So we do a quarterly review of the competition in the Middle East and other markets we go to, to attract those folks, be it Europe or be it India or Pakistan or whatever, and understand what the competition are doing there. So we can then obviously have those conversations around table within HR and then bring that discussion point to leadership then for discussion in a wider circle. So I don't know what to say to that apart from it's <laughs> I don't know what to say because, you know, I speak with a lot of a lot of talent acquisition leaders. And unfortunately, there's a little bit of a misconception. They kind of think that once the person's in through the door, they wash their hands of it. They've done their job. And here you are at Accenture saying, no, we are responsible for the first 12 months of their employment, essentially, to make sure that we've hired the right person, they're successful in the role, and we're gauging, you know, where are the gaps and learning from it. And I think that's key. Accenture has proven time and time again throughout the years that it's has a very successful sort of internal TA engine. Okay. And I think it wouldn't be Accenture if that were not the case. And you've just given us some insight into how you maintain that position. But is there one thing in particular, or let's say 
two things in particular that you would say help to spearhead the factor that you're able to keep ahead of the market? It's very much around when I started my personal journey, of course, with Accenture was to communicate nearly four and a half years ago to, you know, to, I think, ramp the model up, look at it, restructure it, what's working, what's not working. I think the important part, if we look at Accenture, very good point made. We hired a, approximately 110,000 people a year. So that is yeah. quite an engine. It's quite a big mechanism. It's, it's a global model now. We've transitioned very much to a global model. We've transitioned to from a silo to a global, which has worked. And there's been a number of different factors involved with that as well, which I think goes back to the hybrid conversation. We can pick it up later on. But, you know, and you're seeing that happen with a lot of competitors in the MNC space as well, where they're kind of saying, you know, hybrid model, it works. If it works from home, you know, does a person need to be in Dubai? They can be sitting in Sri Lanka. They can be sitting in, you know, wherever the case may be. But I think what you look at it, you look at the market and you've got to be constantly one step ahead of the market. So that constant marketing, market data, the drivers of what's happening, the shifts with the competition, the shifts with the skill sets, more importantly. So when you see where those skills availability gaps are, that's where you need to be one step ahead, you know. And if you are, say, for example, looking at Saudiization, knowing that we have to ramp up to nearly 65, 70%, amortization has got to be 6%, it's got to be 8%, Qatar is starting now, brainization is already now at 8%. You know, where are the areas that you can look at to attract folks? You know, if we don't have the skill available now at a more senior level, we've got to start looking at bringing that skill in at the graduate level or the analyst level and growing that skill. You know, looking at females, leadership, you know, growing that area as well. So there's a number of different factors, I think, but primarily it is essentially market mapping. You've got to know what your co- you've got to know the market. You've got to know what the, your ecosystem partners are doing. Very critical, important. When you look at, you know, not just ecosystem from a commercial perspective, but from a government perspective, you know, working with the government authorities to, you know, because they're very excited and they're and obviously quite aggressive in looking at, you know, upskilling their um, folks. And obviously that's a clear priority and how we can work with them to ensure that happens. And that could be happening with just, not just government organizations, but also with universities. You know, universities are now coming to us and saying to us, what skills do you need? They will design and open courses and in partnership with us now to say, right, we'll open up this course. It'll be a two or three year postgrad diploma. And then essentially we'll hire those folks essentially from there as well. So there's a number of different factors like a bit, of, a bit like an octopus, we're spreading our arms, out, our tentacles out there in numerous different silos or different areas to partner, to engage, and then to look at the, the future skills gaps. More importantly, that we see coming, particularly in technologies, it's constantly changing. I mean, partnerships are key. Partnerships in any are, are really key, and there are a number of resources or channels that are uh, set up to to be conducive to this partnership to help organizations you know, bring in different skill sets. You know, you touched on nationalization and without going into that topic too much because it is, it's a full topic on its own. You know, if if you're looking at the UAE, for example, with amortization, there's this push obviously to move towards hiring uh, additional uh, nationals within the private sector. A lot of organizations are working towards this. If an organization does not offer flexible working, which we're seeing is a trend, I mean, particularly in like youth and this is what they want. So if they're not offering this, it's already a very small talent pool. You know, UAE nationals is a very small talent pool within the UAE because of the, the ratio of expats to nationals anyway in the demographic. So 
how do you propose organizations attract this talent pool if they're not able to offer flexibility? Good question. I mean, obviously, flexibility of working hours is one thing, but there is other incentives, of course, as well. You know, obviously, you know, we looked at, I mean, just one minor point would be, say, for females, for example, okay, new mothers, you know, they would get three to six months off. And we would insist that they don't travel for a year or two years after that to a client because they have to be home with their families. Small things like this make a difference, you know, and they make a very big impact, particularly to a mother, new mother or new father, you know, because they don't have to be spending three or four days away from home. That is just one small element. You look at comp and ban, you look at the incentives. Of course, you're going to retain people, you know, based on performance and performance outcomes. But I'm, but I did see, and it's becoming quite apparent now, particularly in the compensation space, retainers. You're seeing people being offered retainers to stay with the company for 12 months to 24 months. You're seeing a lot of companies oh, wow. now putting it to contracts now as well, NDAs, where you can't go to the competition for 12 months. So these are smaller, not very necessarily kind of beneficial to a certain degree to the employee, but the employer is, is trying to do it. It's not something we do, but flexibility as well. I mean, it's not just around working where you're actually physically working from. I mean, the hours you work, you know, particularly, you know, do you have to be in the office at nine o'clock? No, you don't. You can be in at 11, 12, and then you can go home at six or five o'clock as the case may be. I mean, how much, I mean, if you go back to the old, even 10 years ago, I mean, how long would you would it take commuting into work for an hour and a half, an hour and a half back? How much is it costing you in office space? It's costing you so much. All of these costs do, of course, for an employer, stack up because a person get, is at home, they're rested, they're flexible, they can pop online immediately and work away. They haven't wasted nearly three hours or two hours a day commuting. It's costing them less, of course, in office space costs as well. It's costing them less in insurance. It's costing them less in these areas. So these are in- incentives, of course, which employers are looking at too. I'm probably going off the point there. But I think from a, a flexibility perspective, holidays as well. You know, looking at holidays, you know, what kind of flexibility do you have there? Some companies are very stern saying you must take two weeks together. You must. We, I mean, that's not going to work for people. You know, people need that one right. day here, three days here. Somebody is sick. We're all a human. Of course, people need time off. We understand that. You know, we don't expect you to be demanding a sick search after three days. We, we trust our people. That's an important part. I think back to your previous point, trust. Trusting right. professionals to get on with the job. You know, you're hired for a reason. You're hard for your skill. You're hard for your talent. You're hard for being professional. We're not here to hold your hand. At the end of the day, you're accountable. And I think the culture we have here drives that. So those flexibilities, our leads are very flexible in regards and supportive, I believe, as well in that space. But I think Accenture is a culture. And I believe in previous companies, we did very much have a very open culture, a culture of feedback, which I think is super important, too. So a lot of cultures don't have that. They wait halfway through the year or the end of the year for a performance review. We have a constant culture feedback. Monthly, looking to refocus, to realign. We all go off the rails a bit. Obviously, need some mentorship. That's an availability too as well. So I think particularly with junior members of staff, they want that direction. They want to be advised. We give that as a candidate value proposition and say to them, you know, this is going to be what you're going to be doing for the first year. This is your person to go to. And that puts a lot of, trust, I think, to an organization where a new employee feels not so much out in the cold, but that they know they're on this journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think from an employer perspective, one thing that that maybe is being missed in, in these organizations where they're not offering flexible working arrangements is, you know, I think the end goal for every organization is growing. Okay. Every company wants to grow. How can you remain a scalable organization if you have 
mandates that you can't track. So for example, how can you grow to become a global organization with offices in, you know, sprinkled in different countries? How are you going to track whether or not an employee is there or is online or is present or is engaged? You know, I mean, you're not able to do that. Instead, you need to put in place mechanisms that help you track the output of each employee and use that to decide how you mold your your working model, I think, you know, and as you said, yes, trust, ownership, but I think, you know, building out in the way that Accenture has an engine or a mechanism to help to identify data to support how you're approaching things is kind of the right way to go. So I think that sometimes it's forgotten, you know, it's forgotten from a lot of organizations. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've got one last question for you, if you don't mind. One last thing. (laughs) So you've helped us to understand how Accenture has stayed ahead Okay, uh, you definitely have your finger on the market, on what's changing, on what's happening, on what's working. What about you personally, David? How do you make sure from a thought leadership perspective that you are not only keeping up, but staying ahead, that you are informed? How do you do that for yourself? Well, obviously, great question. I mean, personally, you know, I make it, it's my priority is my team. You know, that's obviously my priority, you know, and obviously understanding that my team are kept up to date, kept up skilled. They've got clear direction. They've got clear support. That's obviously my mandate. But I, I think it's very important to look at it from a number of different lenses. The first lens, of course, is that you are in tune with your business, you know, that you are a business partner. You know, and understanding your business is essential. You see a lot of it in the past, and it's quite common, you know, recruitment is treated like, you know, obviously, that it's, it's just transactional. That's the mindset of a lot of people, okay, where it's not. That's changed dramatically. They're mar- we are marketeers. We are salespeople. We are business partner. We need to know your business to be able to sell it or to source the right people, to bring the right people and give the best candidate experience. I think the most frustrating part, I think you get feedback from people is, you know, even with people applying for jobs, you know, they don't get feedback and you know, nobody comes back to them. You know, that is a, quite a frustrating thing or a recruiter picks up the phone and is unable to inform even that senior candidate of what the role is, you know, what the expectations are. And that, you know, that first initial engagement is essential to keep, to have somebody's interest. What we do and what I do, of course, as well, naturally as well, I track these things, obviously, as I mentioned, there's a number of different metrics and data points I track on a weekly, quarterly, monthly basis. I don't believe in going too super data because, you know, obviously you get yourself bogged down and you lose that, that element too. But, you know, the right tools will essentially help you in that manner as well to move away from a manual you see a lot of operating systems at the moment and tools are becoming quite cheap. They're coming inexpensive. We've got the platforms. We've got to, we're all on the cloud now. You know, obviously tracking data is one thing. And obviously the candidate experience and that measurement and manager experience is essential as well. That, you know, that they believe they're being rightly managed and the services up to, up to what they expect from a qualitative and quantitative perspective too. But even about the brand. So knowing about how our brand is positioned, you know, we do again, go to market and get the feedback and Gallup polls and right across the board as well, understanding how we are as a preferred employer, you know, and why is that? You know, so understanding the market, understanding the expectations, I think of that is essentially the most important thing as well. So I make it my business to be constantly reading up. I read, you know, at least two or three journals or updates. I'm watching the news consistently about the business, how business is changing in this part of the world against Obviously, internally, what we are doing internally as well, but our clients listening to our business and getting their feedback, you know, if and clients feedback essentially from the business, you know, about what's working, what's not working. So the old school met mindset, I believe, of just recruitment, turning over CVs and popping them over, it's over. No, we are talent managers at the end of the day. I think you're going to see a lot of automation of, of recruiting. 
that's already started. And, you know, I, a lot of recruiters are getting nervous. I think you've seen it globally, you know, that obviously is it still human? Of course, it still has to be human. People still want to speak to a human being at the end of the day. But you need to change. That model is changing, you know, and efficiencies are coming in to ensure that recruiter can maximize their time in the right areas and focus in the right areas to ensure that they are bringing the best return on investment. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I'm... I, I am a big advocate of it because I do think that if you have a recruiting team that's, you know, spending a lot of time on manual efforts or ad hoc requests or anything that kind of takes them away from the core job, then you don't have an efficient team. You just don't. So yeah, I, I, I completely resonate with what you've said. I think you've provided us with a lot of insight in terms of how Accenture operates, how they approach things, but also yourself, I think as a TA leader, how you ensure that your team has what they need in terms of resources, in terms of you know knowledge, learnings, and so on, and how you make that available for them. So it's great to see that type of leadership. It's, I mean, it's proven very successful. And you know, I just want to thank you very much for coming on today, spending time with me and letting everyone you know in on your secrets. I think it's, it'll probably help a lot of people. So I appreciate your time. Not at all, sir. My absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And thank you very much for the time today. It's been very enlightening. It's a very passionate <laughs> thing. I think it's a great topic. I think it's it's going to be the new lo- the new star, I think, going forward. And I think a lot of organizations now need to kind of sit back and start looking at, you know, how we're going to manage this going forward. It is definitely exciting times. And I, I have to admit, I struggle a little bit, you know, trying to remain objective with this topic <laughs> just because, <laughs> you know, of what I see. So it's definitely nice to bounce, bounce the topic off of, of someone else. Um, and I, I know that it's not the last time that we're, we're going to be speaking about it. So I look forward to welcoming you back on the podcast for future discussions. I will be knocking on your door. For anyone who's listening in, I appreciate you taking the time to listen in. Give us your feedback. Let us know what you think of today's discussion. If you have questions for myself or David, feel free to send them in and we'll of course get back to you. And and yes, please like and subscribe. Thank you again, David, so much. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much, Sarah.